Last Sunday, we studied Job 28, which has been called the hymn to wisdom. But as Job speaks of wisdom and its sources, he speaks of the glory of man, the wonder of man, how man has attributes not found in other creatures. Uh, has intellect, persistence, curiosity, vision, courage, industry, discernment, creativity, and insight. And our first reaction might be to be cautious or even to be alarmed at, at such praise of humanity, in part because we understand that God alone is to be worshipped and we are deeply suspicious of any glorying in human beings, sort of smacks of idolatry. Um, we understand that human beings are fallen, separated from God and deeply flawed. And the Reformed doctrine is called total depravity. But I think that's only part of the equation. I, I suspect that it has to do more with the world in which we live, in which there is an assault on the human, on the individual, on the value of life, on the greatness of human beings. I think this is happening and we may not even realize it. I'm going to talk about it a bit by way of introduction. One of the key marks of our age is cynicism. And in an age of cynicism and great irony, you know, all claims to truth, all expressions, all assertions of truth are really sort of looked at ironically that they really can't be true. And part of this cynicism deals with the value of human beings or the worth of human beings, which I think our age would read Job 28 and not really approve. Consider just the way that modern biographies are done or even simply the telling of someone's story. And I, I do a lecture on cynicism in some of my classes because I think it's something that really pervades uh, the academic setting. But I think it's, it's now left the academy, it's left the university, and now we see it on the street. In a book called Rescuers, the Lives of Heroes, um, the story is told of a man named Mosher who heard a woman in the apartment above him struggling uh, realized she was being attacked, that there was a man trying to rape her. He went upstairs, broke into the apartment and saved this woman's life and ended up being stabbed and almost died from the knife wound uh, that he received from this attacker. And the author, Michael Lessie, writes, Some may say that Mosher overcame his failure and frustration to do what he did. In fact, failure and frustration were the cause of his actions. They enabled him to act. They compelled him to act. If he hadn't been so unhappy, if he hadn't felt so trapped, he wouldn't have acted. Because he needed to be saved, he saved someone else. In other words, he didn't do it because he wanted to help this woman. There was some compulsion behind this that caused him to do this. That the idea of actually wanting to help a fellow human being is gone, and the potential of being heroic is gone. This is just the result of his psychological background. Joyce Carol Oates, uh, an author, also complains about this, that so many recent biographies of great figures, of great literary figures, she says um, that these books so mercilessly expose their subjects, so relentlessly catalog their most private, vulnerable, and least illuminating moments as to divest them of all mystery save the crucial and unexplained. How did a distinguished body of work emerge from so undistinguished a life. In other words, they rip the person to shreds and the only question you're left with after you've read the biography is how could this wretch have possibly produced such wonderful literature? It is, I think, part of the spirit of our age where human greatness is not accepted. It is under attack. And if you see, even in popular culture, say comedy, for example, on TV, uh, what is so powerful today is self-parody, where everyone makes fun of themselves and never takes themselves seriously. And, um, and you know, I have to admit, I laugh with the best of them. I love to watch David Letterman, uh, which he's always, in a sense, uh, making fun of himself. He'll tell a joke and he'll go, I, what does that mean? I, I don't know what that means. But without realizing it, in many ways, it diminishes what it means to be human, that somehow... I make fun of myself because I can't possibly do anything that is great. And so it's a constant put down, even if it's on myself, it's a constant put down of what it means to be human. 
See, in our time, we sense that celebrity is much more important than heroic. Um, in a cynical age, there are no heroes because there cannot be any human greatness. Uh, and the concept of the hero becomes more and more foreign. We are much more comfortable with the idea of celebrity. And Daniel Borston defined celebrity as somebody who is well known for being well known. You know, they're, they're not particularly great people. We just know about them because we know about them. Um, a hero, on the other hand, I think biblically is someone who has great character virtues. And as I said, our age sees no need for heroes. Uh, Bertolt Brecht in his play on Galileo. Uh, Galileo, who uh, had to recant under pressure from the Roman Catholic Church all of the scientific discoveries he had made. And he gave in. And one of his students in the play says, it is a sad land that has no heroes. And Galileo responds, no, rather it is a sad land that needs heroes. And we see ourselves as no longer needing anyone who is heroic, anyone that we should emulate. Again, I think this is a result of cynicism, that we reject the possibility of human greatness. That if we hear of someone that is great, we're waiting for someone to write a biography or an expose or to see them in the National Enquirer and to know that, yeah, they really actually, after all, aren't that great of an individual. Any human goodness, I think, in our age is only seen as superficial, that it's on the surface and let's just get some investigative reporters in there and to sort of get below the surface and then we'll really find out what this person is like. Lest I seem cynical myself, I would argue that people prefer celebrities over heroes. And for a reason that may not seem to make sense, but they prefer celebrities because celebrities are so far away. And heroes are far too accessible for comfort. See, when we admire someone who is a celebrity, does it motivate us to do anything? Uh, when you admire a great athlete who can just do spectacular things. Uh, those of you who watch Lakers, the Lakers, uh, Kobe Bryant's dunk the other night was just, just amazing. But does that inspire me to do anything besides go get another snack from the refrigerator? I mean, what does that inspire me to do? There's another aspect to this. We have a whole industry that is dedicated to tearing down celebrities. And so we like that, that the idea of someone. I almost worship, you know, American Idol. I, I worship this person, someone who has who has a talent that I don't have that I can't. I will never have. But we idolize them. But then we're looking every time we check out the, the grocery store to see if someone has found some dirt on this person. So we don't aspire to be great. We don't think in terms of human greatness. We don't think of moral greatness. We don't think of living lives of compassion or charity, sacrifice or giving. Dick Kyes has written on this. We have his book on heroism up in the library, as well as, I think, at least three or four tapes when he talks about this. And in one of the tapes, he compares because they, they've happened within the same period of time, the death of Princess Diana and the death of Mother Teresa and, and how that there was this. I mean, when you compare in terms of the outpouring of grief uh, for Princess Diana, there's just this enormous outpouring of grief. And yet people were sad that Mother Teresa died. But yet after all, she is an old woman and you know, eventually old, older people die. But he argued that in Princess Diana, this is someone that we can never be. And so this is someone we embrace. I'm never going to be a princess of England, okay? But someone who is so distant, I would prefer to embrace rather than Mother Teresa, whom I could be like. I could live a life of self-sacrifice. I could give my life to help the poor and the dying. That's far too com that's too close for comfort. And so we push these people away and we embrace those that are so far distant from us at the same time, secretly hoping that we'll get some dirt on them. And in the whole process 
the greatness of humanity is lost. The church, I think the calling of the church is to be countercultural, to give the world what it does not have, but what it desperately needs. Those of you who are my age or older may remember that the church in our younger days was fighting secular humanism. Those humanists out there. You know, it may, the time may have come for us to be the new humanist. For us to read Job chapter 28 aloud and say to the world, human beings have greatness. They are made in the image of God. In a world that seeks to tear down and to say, you can never be great. Don't even try to aspire to moral greatness. Try to be a celebrity. Try to be a professional athlete. Try to get on TV, even if it's Jerry Springer, you know. But at least, you know what is it? Andy Warhol said, you're 15 minutes of fame. A human life reduced to 15 minutes. That is an assault on humanity. And Job, in this wonderful hymn to wisdom, I think speaks of the greatness of human beings. And as God's people, we should embrace this. In an age that denies the reality of capital T truth, or what Schaefer used to call true truth, we should say that man is made in the image of God. And yet at the same time, as Job does in this chapter, say that for all of man's greatness, his abilities, his wisdom, his skills come from God. We reject secular humanism because it puts man at the center of all things. We put God at the center of all things and with him there and the abilities he gives to human beings. We can just sort of stand back in awe at what human beings are capable of doing. And so I would encourage you to be more sensitive and to be more aware as you watch comedians, even as you watch movies, as you read the paper, as you hear people writing biographies and just see that in many ways they're pulling down the glory of man. Man is made in God's image. No other creature on this planet is. We have the potential of fellowship with God. No other creature does on this planet. That is something that we should embrace. Now we come to chapters 29, 30, and 31. We could call this Job's last stand. His friends are done talking. At different points, he will sort of pause as though to give them. It's like, do you guys want to say anything? But they will not. And so this is when he's done at the end of chapter 31, except for a few statements toward the end of the book. Job is finished. And in these chapters, we find three portraits of Job. Um, as he looks at his past, how wonderful it was as he looks at his present and what a mess it is and how painful it is. And then thirdly, as he defends himself as a man of integrity. One author writes about this section. When we first met Job, we admired him. When he suffered calamity, our hearts went out to him. When he stood his ground against cruel friends, we sided with him. But now when he builds around himself a picket fence of eyes, I, speaking of himself, he is hard to like. But we need to recognize what Job is doing here. Having established at the end of chapter 28 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now in this final presentation, he talks about his past versus his present. And the arguments of his friends versus the reality of his integrity. He is innocent of the charge, the charges that they have made against him. We will go through this, I trust, quickly. First of all, chapter 29, the glory of the past. And almost wistfully, Job remembers what it was like in the good old days before all of this happened. The first thing he notes is that in the good old days, God favored him. God was blessing him. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 1 through 6. Job continued his discourse. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, 
when his lamp shone upon my head. By his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate fellowship, or friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. Here he remembers that in the past God watched over him, that God lit his path, that God had intimate friendship and that friendship blessed his house. And he remembers, I think, wistfully but painfully, his children, his ten children that are now dead and the prosperity that he enjoyed. He continues that not only did God favor him, but he was favored by his uh, contemporaries. Verses 7 through 9. When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside, and the old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Job's fame came from the young and the old alike. The young men, the elderly respected him alike. The high in society, the chief and the nobles listen when Job had to speak. But as we see in verses 11 through 17, it isn't simply because he had money. It isn't simply because he had political clout. It is, in fact, because of his great uh, help, his, his outpouring of compassion for those in need. Beginning in verse 11. Whoever heard, of, heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me. Because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Job helped those who were in need, the poor, the fatherless, the dying, the widow, the blind, the lame, the needy, the stranger, that is an alien, someone who had no legal standing in the community. Because in the ancient world, you had to be a citizen of a town to have legal protection. If you were not a citizen, the law did not protect you. But Job was, in fact, someone who would protect those who were unprotected. Things were going really well for Job in the good old days. He had his health. And in his good health, he thought, I'm going to live a long life. Look, if you would, in verses 18 through 20. I thought I will die in my own house, my days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water and dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will remain fresh in me the bow ever knew in my hand. Job thought, I'm going to live a long life. I'm going to live a good long life. And then he closes this by speaking of how leadership pursued him. And I think if you could summarize verses 21 through 25, you could summarize it in the word charisma. Job was a charismatic man that people flocked to, particularly those who were leaders. Men listened to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me as for showers and drank in my words as a spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. His advice was sought by those in positions of leadership. His approval was precious to them. When he smiled at somebody, it made their day. And it was more than that. It, it showed his approval. His decisions were final to them. Whatever Job said, this is what we should do, then that, in fact, is what they did. But those were the good old days. And in chapter 30, we deal with the agony of the present. He begins verse number, or 
Verse number one of chapter 30. But now. Okay. Things have changed. Disaster has come upon him. We'll read through this quickly, but I think the key to this particular passage is found in verses 16 through 19. And I want you to look at them now, if you would. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never, never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. But we shouldn't stop there, because I think perhaps the most important statement is verse number 20. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. Things were wonderful back then, but now things are not so good. This chapter, I've divided it up into three sections, but there's heavy overlap, and I'm putting them in different order in what they were written. But much of this chapter, I think, should be familiar to us from the rest of the book of Job. First of all, he goes from being respected to being a joke. And... um, We'll read this. I, I encourage you to read this when you get home. But the young men who used to respect him no longer do. Verse number one, they mock me. And it isn't simply that these are younger people, that the younger mock the older. That seems to be a problem, I think, with every generation. But these are men whose fathers are of the lowest part of society, as Job sees it. And yet these young men who come from if you wish, bad families, have the temerity to mock Job because of his present disaster. And in verses 3 through 7, which I think uh, are difficult for some because it seems to change subject, Job is describing the fathers of these men, that they are loafers, they're lazy, they're scavengers, they're outcasts, and yet the sons of these outcasts, these lazy loafers, somehow have the nerve to disrespect Job, to look down their noses at him because of his present circumstances. At the end of the chapter, he talks about how that, at the beginning, he has gone from respect to fool. He goes from good health to being close to death. And, And this is, I think, one of the more graphic descriptions of Job's condition. If you look at verse 27, The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I have become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My harp is tuned to mourning and my flute to the sound of wailing. We're not sure what Job had, and as I've argued, it wasn't simply one thing. He had a variety of ailments. The devil threw everything he could at him, and now his skin has turned black, and not simply because he's out in the, in the garbage dump of the town. That's where he's living now. It is because of his condition, whatever it is, that it has blackened his skin, and his skin is now beginning to peel. We've read elsewhere how his skin is cracking, and he has sores. This is a man who not that long ago thought, I'm going to die in my own bed. I'm going to live a long, long life. Things have changed dramatically. But perhaps the greatest change is what we've read about already in verses 16 through 20. That one who was blessed and favored by God, that God's intimate friendship blessed him, now God has turned against him, has gone from divine favor to divine brutality. And God has just, um, well, let's read, verses, uh, beginning at verse number 21. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death to the place appointed for all the living. 
This is what has happened. This is what God has done. The one who used to light his path, the one who used to favor him with his friendship, God has turned against him. It is one thing to be rejected by other human beings. And I think no matter how strong we are in terms of our egos or our own sense of self-worth, it, it hurts to be rejected by others. But to be rejected by God is disastrous. And Job cannot understand why this has happened to him. And so we come to chapter 31, in which Job once again protests his innocence. By what he's done in the first two chapters, by talking about the wonderful past and in describing the shabby present, Job has created sort of an either-or uh, situation. Either he has sinned, and because of his sin, his downfall is the result of God's answering his sin, or he has not sinned, and why he is suffering remains a great, great mystery. But Job will not give in. He is absolutely unyielding about this. He has not sinned against God that God would bring this disaster upon him. You might note that in chapter 29, uh, the word that the key word, I think, is when, because he keeps talking about the past, when this, you know, when my children were around me, when rocks would sort of bleed cream or oil. Uh, in chapter 30, it is. But now, as he speaks about the present reality, in this chapter, we will see this time and time again. We see if, and then he'll make a statement, then. Uh, if sets up the condition, if I have done this, then these should be the consequences that should come against me if the condition is true. What he is doing is, is adopting the, the cause and effect doctrine of his friends. His friends are absolutely convinced he has done something horrible. He must have done something horrible. Otherwise, why would God do this to him? And Job says, if I have done, and he gives a list of 14 sins, if I have done this, then may these consequences come on me. In Job's day, legally, it was the right of every accused to hear the charges against him. It was also his right to plead not guilty. And he would plead not guilty by setting up a, an if then scenario. He would say, if I have committed this crime, crime X, then let this consequence come upon me. And generally speaking, in the ancient world, it would be something along the line, may I be cursed by the gods and may I be cursed by my neighbors. That is, mankind, the gods, may they curse me if I have done this. So if you've been accused of something, you say, I've not done this. If I committed this crime, then may God, may the gods, may human beings, my fellow neighbors, uh, curse me. You have to do this for every crime that he's accused of committing. This would be written down and then the accused would sign it. And then it would be published. It would be put up in a public place as a call for those who were want to be witnesses, to say, no, 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 you, you actually did do that. And if witnesses would come forward, there would be a trial. But if no witnesses would come forward, then the document was taken down, it was taken to the judge, and the judge would say, you are hereby acquitted of all the accusations against you. In this chapter, that's precisely what Job is seeking to do. He wants to be acquitted of all these things that his friends have accused him of doing. And if you look uh, in verses 35 through 37, uh, in the NIV, it's in parenthesis, but it, it shows you culturally where Job is. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step like a prince. I would approach him. Job says, write it out. All the things my friends have accused me of. And he gives a list here of 14 different sins. Some of them they have not accused him of, but 
just in case anyone's accused him. I have not done these things. I am innocent. And if I have done this, then may these things happen to me. And here, when you secretary, when you're finished writing it, let me sign it and put it on the wall. And God Almighty, who has accused me, if he wants to accuse me, come on, bring the indictment. You want to be a witness against me? Be a witness. Some people have suggested that Job is very nearly in the territory we would call blasphemy. But Job is convinced that God is righteous and that God is just. And God has not spoken through this whole mess. I think he wants God, I know he wants God to come down and speak and say, Job, this is why this is happening to you. These are the things that you have done. And so in a sense, he's calling God out. I've not done these things. If I have, then do all these terrible things to me. God will be silent a bit longer until after Elihu has spoken, and then God will speak. And when God speaks and Job says, I should have kept my mouth shut, I didn't know what I was talking about. Job lists 14 sins in this chapter. And the Lord willing, we will look at them in some detail next week. But let me just give you the list. He begins with lust, and then he talks of falsehood, covetousness, adultery, mistreating his servants, in modern terms, mistreating his employees or co-employees, lack of concern for the poor, failure to clothe the poor, perverting justice against the weak, not simply perverting justice, but against those who can't afford Johnny Cochran, trusting in wealth, worshiping celestial bodies, that is, false gods, delighting in another's misfortune, failing to extend hospitality, concealing a sin without confession. And lastly, abusing the land. Uh, for Job, uh, as for the other people in the Old Testament, the modern church has lost sight of this, we have a responsibility to creation. We of all people should have a greater sensitivity uh, to the land. And, and Job says, listen, I've not raped the land, I've not abused the land, I am a good steward of God's creation. Each of these sins is a public, but it's also a personal sin against the rights of man and against the law of God. Each of them bears the consequences of severe punishment, human punishment and divine punishment and divine punishment, not only in this life, but in the life to come. We will study this, Lord willing, as I said, in greater depth next week, but one cannot avoid a sense after reading this chapter that Job was a rare individual. How many other persons do you know in human history who would dare open up their character and their conduct and say, here, here I am. I'm on trial. Accuse me of any sin. See if there's any sin that you can accuse me of. And he doesn't simply do this to human beings. Because sometimes we think people don't know what we're doing. He does this to God. To the Lord Almighty, here I am. Accuse me. Indict me. What is it that I have done? As another author says, in this, Job is really hard to like because he puts us to shame. Here is a righteous man. Rather than dealing with the 14 sins, which again we'll deal with next week, I want to consider what this chapter tells us about Job. First of all, Job admits his weaknesses. Now, right off the bat, you know, I think we want to be clear that Job is not saying, guys, I'm perfect. I, I don't ever do anything wrong. He begins by admitting his weakness. And this takes some reading to, to get to this, but it's in the very first verse. I have made or I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. How does this show his weakness? That Job admits that it requires self-discipline. He didn't just come into this world and he doesn't have any problems with sins like lust. 
like not extending hospitality, that like not being compassionate to others? No, it is something that requires discipline and a covenant because he is a sinner. He is a weak man. And so in order not to look lustfully after someone within himself, he had to reach an agreement. I will not do this. I will not look lustfully after someone. But by beginning, I think, with this and admitting his weakness, he opens, he declares his life an open book. Here I am. I'm a weak man. I'm not a perfect man, but I have not done these things that I'm accused of. Secondly, Job's love, and we saw this in the first chapter, but his love goes beyond mere duty. If you look at verses 16 through 22, as he speaks of how he dealt with those in need. Um, if I have, verse 16, if I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow. It's not simply someone... Uh, and I don't mean to make light of it because this is something I do. This is not merely someone who makes donations to goodwill. It's a Salvation Army, and there's certainly a place for that. This is a man who helps those in need out of a deep sense of love. He doesn't simply help someone who's lost his father. He raises that child as his own. It's an amazing man. Thirdly, we see that he avoids idolatry. His wealth is not his God. He'd been accused of that. Uh, his wealth was not his confidence or his hope. Fourthly, we see that this is a man marked by hospitality. And we will talk about this somewhat next week. Um, a man of great hospitality. And lastly, it's a man, this is a man who cares for God's creation. Not only did he not steal other people's land, or steal their crops. He doesn't rape the land. He treats the land with care. When we get to the end of chapter 31, we are told the words of Job are ended. This is it. Job, I'm done. I'm finished. This is all he has to say. As I said, we will pick this up next week. In these chapters, we are given three portraits of Job. What it was like in the past to live the blessed life. To have God's favor on him. To have the favor of his neighbors on him. And the second portrait is what it's like from Job's perspective to be plunged from wonderful blessedness down into this absolute darkness. Human wretchedness. Someone has said it means it is like going from a life of blessedness to go down to hell itself. And thirdly, the portrait of Job's heart. Job is a man of integrity, not only toward God, but toward his fellow human beings. He was before this happened. He is while it is happening. And one assumes that when he finally hits the bottom and if things improve, he will continue to be a man of integrity. His wife early on said, what? You're going to maintain your integrity? Just curse God, get it over with. Let God kill you and then you won't suffer anymore. This is a man of integrity. I would ask you in closing, was Job a man of faith? I think these chapters prove beyond a doubt that he was. His pain and his anger have not driven him to despair. Rather, he recognizes that since God is the supreme ruler, Job has nowhere to turn but to God with the hope that God will answer him. He hasn't thus far, but Job has not given up hope. Job has never for a moment suggested God's not there. He's all a fiction. He's just a projection. No, God's there. He's just not speaking. And Job wants to know why, but he has not given up hope. One last thing before I stop. On some level, there is a parallel that can be drawn between chapters 29 and 30, the great life and the fall, to what we see in the life of Jesus. 
admired by the people. And haven't you ever wondered how this man who fed 5,000, who raised the dead and healed the sick within a few days could have a crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. In some small way, Job knows what that's like to go from being the man, the one who had possessions, who had family, who had God's friendship and intimate friendship and blessedness to someone whom the lowest people in society feel they can spit on and disrespect. And today, as we remember Jesus' death, I think in line with what we've studied, it would do us well to remember the change that occurred in the life of Jesus before, from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, of people praising him and saying Hosanna, to a few days later, a bare few days later, saying, we have no king but Caesar. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Crucify him. But lest we stop there, because that's not the place to stop, we should understand that the sacrifice of Christ was to pay to atone for our sins. His death was to satisfy the requirements of God the Father. And Jesus willingly gave his life. Let's pray together. Father, we do not understand the changes that come into our lives. Some days seem so good and others so disastrous. Sometimes we are favored by those around us. And before we know it, we no longer are. It doesn't happen in every life. It doesn't happen all the time. But we see it in the life of Job. And we remember it in the life of your son. Men of integrity who are rejected by those around them. We thank you for the example of Job. But above all, we give thanks for your son. Who when he was cursed, did not curse back. When he was reviled, did not answer. But gave himself freely to you. He gave his life to you that we might have eternal life. We remember his death and his sacrifice with gratitude today. And we pray in his name. Amen.
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand, please? John in the back. Okay. Praise God from whom all bless. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.